Welcome to The Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals, the fifth season of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. I'm Crispin Mayfield, and I'm a therapist. I'm D.L. Mayfield, and I'm a writer and neighbor. And we discuss evangelical artifacts from the 80s and 90s. This season, we're tackling everybody's favorite kids series, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. So join us as we return to childhood and rediscover what's special about this series as we keep our eye out for themes of dominant theology. What what episode number is this? Uh, nine, I think. Oh my gosh. Episode nine. Okay, so we're on episode nine of The Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals. Welcome, welcome. Uh, what, this will be the second week of Advent. This is dropping, and we're finally at the dreaded week. The week where I have to deal with rereading my favorite Chronicles of Narnia book as a child, which was The Horse and His Boy. So, Kristen, are you going to ask me if I reread it? Did you reread it? I did. I reread it the past few days. Did and you I, read all of it? Yeah. And I, I've truly been putting it off. Uh-huh. Um, and so, even when I interviewed our guest, this was like months ago, I interviewed him, by the way. That's how podcasts work. Uh, um, I, I had just been putting it off, putting it off. I finally reread it and drum roll, please. It was fine. It wasn't as bad as I remembered it to be because because in my mind, I loved it as a story. But then I was like, oh, I think it's like super duper duper racist. The thing is, so it was just super duper racist. It was just racist. You know what I mean? Uh But here's the deal. I also had to reread The Last Battle recently for another upcoming interview, and that one was so much more racist than I remembered it being. So in my mind, it kind of evens out. Like, The Horse and Boy, like, yes, it's racist, but it's not, like, super duper, but, like, The Last Battle is. I didn't remember it being that way at all. So all of this stuff about race comes up when C.S. Lewis is writing about one of the land's in this world, which is weird. I think we call the world Narnia, but Narnia is just a country in a world. That is such a good point that I forget is all the Aslan's time. Is it Aslan's world? What's like the name of it? Because oh, like in hmm. The Magician's Nephew, they call it Narnia, right? When he created Narnia. Yeah. But I'm like, huh. Narnia is just a country because there's these other countries, including Kallerman mm-hmm. is the, the country that we're kind of going to be talking about today. So and this is a shout out to you Lewis nerds out there uh-huh. that listen to this, even though you know way more than we do. Oh my gosh. And please clarify for us what is Narnia? Well, Narnia is a country in a world. Uh huh. So, what's, what's, the the, what's the world that Narnia is in? Yeah. And so, maybe that's also just going back to C.S. Lewis's like, didn't think everything out really great, but like, there's this other world that's called Archenland, which is like, also good white people so it's pretty good but like Callerman is in the south and everybody has dark skin and like pointy shoes and curly beards and um I I don't know like what do you remember of Callerman from the books because again it shows up prominently in in two of them right I just remember the illustrations is what really stands out to me oh interesting yeah so talk about the illustrations yeah I mean you know the pointy shoes the like beard like was there like curled shoes almost right yeah uh yeah yeah. curled shoes long beards Uh um and actually I will say that for me like 
when I was a kid, it wasn't like, oh, this is like, this represents a part of our world. It was just in my mind, because I was, had so little exposure to other cultures, I was like, oh, this is this weird, like country that, that, uh, Lewis made up in my mind. Like I thought it was just all out of his imagination. Okay. Well, yeah, that's interesting. And so like it is in a way because our guest, um, who's this amazing uh, Iranian scholar, Ali Reza Shafi Nassab, he kind of talks about Kalerman is really a mishmash of several sort of Eastern cultures. And and Lewis was really influenced by books like Arabian Nights and and all of that. And, and so it's interesting. He kind of unpacks some of the, the legacy of that. And so I think when rereading his The Horses, well, I was just prepared for just lots of like insults about dark skin and stuff and that doesn't really happen in this book but it does happen a lot in the last battle um so it's a little bit yeah i think that ali reza's right that lewis really liked certain aspects of the culture and then there's so much more that he just sort of intrinsically probably found inferior and so one thing that stood out to be positive in the horse and his boy is um lewis is talking about uh, this girl, this Kellerman girl who's running away from home because she doesn't want to be forcibly, you know, married to this old man. She like sits down to tell her story and this boy keeps interrupting her. And the talking horse of the book is like, stop interrupting her. Like she's telling it in the grand Kellerman style, which is unparalleled. And, and C.S. Lewis has this little aside, like every once in a while in the books, he does this little like uh-huh, aside right, yeah. where he talks in like the first person as like C.S. Lewis interrupting. He's like, all the kids in Kellerman like learn how to tell really good stories. Whereas like I only learned how to write essays, you know, and nobody's like clamoring to hear a good essay. Like they want good stories. So he, so he's kind of saying like Kellerman culture is like so much better at telling stories than like British European culture. And and so like when I was talking to our guest today, again, he's coming from Iran. He's coming from a Muslim scholar perspective, somebody who really enjoys C.S. Lewis's works of fiction as fantasy writing. Um, you know, I was I was sort of trying to ask, like, do you find his characterizations of Kalerman culture offensive? And he was sort of like, I don't think he's making fun of them. I think it's like you want to laugh at it. You don't like hate it. Right. You don't find it like negative. And I think, you know, there's probably a wide range of interpretations of that. I still find it pretty troubling, like especially how all the calories talk in this really uh, vaulted language, like, Oh, grand Tisserac. And it's always like, Oh, esteemed Lord. And Oh, and there, it's like kind of like poetry, but it is made to be ridiculous. And so uh, I, I just don't think it's great. I, I truly don't think it's great. I think there's, there's ways to do that so much better. And because he was so messy about it, there's just, so much room to continue to reinforce these stereotypes these really negative stereotypes that ultimately end up elevating white Northern European Narnians above all other culture. And that's truly what the books do. And that sucks. Like, I just want to be honest. Mm-hmm. It's not great. Right. Yeah. At all. The thing that keeps coming up, you've mentioned this in several interviews. Uh, and I think it's just so worth pointing out is like, why, why, does Narnia need these four white kids to come and rule, which just is such an imperialist, uh, colonialist, uh, you know, theme. Yeah. And it, which I'm like, I would have never thought of that. 
Oh no, I get to just it's just wild. Yeah. Um yeah, so I there are also what's really interesting is is Ali Reza did his dissertation on Carl Jung mm-hmm. and archetypes of God. And so I think this interview is a really great introduction to actually themes we will come back to revisit when we talk about the last battle. So be listening for that. What do you have anything you wanted to jump in and, and say about that since you're the therapist? Right. I mean, I just think it's so important to talk about like view of God you know what we think about God he gets into a lot of that important stuff and I think we're going to come back to that um when we talk about the last battle yeah so we're gonna we're gonna we have an amazing interview scheduled uh with someone to talk about the last battle um so can I ask you a question because because uh Ali Reza mentions like Young's archetypes and how does that relate to like archetypes of God because what I heard Ali Reza saying was like Lewis was sort of playing around, especially in the last battle, this idea of like, if you believe in a God that could end up who does good and bad, you know, could be loving and angry, like then those archetypes could be exploited. Right. And and that's what ends up happening in the last battle. And so was Lewis pointing that out about like the Christian concept of God and also the Muslim concept of God. I, I was a little confused about that because if Tash is is sort of a, a Jungian archetype as well, but if Aslan fits into that as well, I mean, that's probably the sign of a really good scholar, really good interview as I was just like, I just have a million more questions and I want to learn so much about it. Right. But what is, what is, what do you know about Jung and his archetypes about how we view deities and like God and stuff? Well, I think it's basically, uh, I don't know a lot about Jung, um, but I think it's just this idea that we have these basic concepts of like good and bad. Um, any Jungian that's listening right now is going to be like, you know, really. Well, email us. Yes, please. Straight. I mean, I think it really goes a lot into this psychological idea that our perception of God really comes from us and not God. Um, I mean, like early psychologist Freud, Jung, um, you know, which is why Christians had such an issue with psychology for a long time. Mm-hmm. But it's so worth looking at. Like, what are the ways that we uh, from ourselves and from our own uh, perspectives create these images of God um, and, and, how, and how are they harmful? Yes. So yes. The last battle really gets into that. So it's exciting mm-hmm. that Ali Reza kind of set us up in right. this interview to just be thinking about these themes, which we will come mm-hmm. back and explore. Now I wanted to make a note about the audio and just say the audio of this interview is not like the best audio we've ever had, but you know, that is like he was recording in a country that's far away and we, you, you know what right, I mean? Yeah. So I just want to tell people like if the audio is kind of annoying, like you can just suck it up because it's really worth it to hear his expertise. Yeah. Oh, you just listen to us ramble. So like you can power through. It's right. short, but it like packs a punch yeah. what he has to say. And I'm just so grateful that he took the time mm-hmm. to uh, talk with me. It was interesting. I never had this experience. His time zone was 13 and a half hours different from mine and a half. Also, one thing that really, I don't know. Also, one thing that I just loved is he has like such a great sense of humor and like in emails and like in conversation, he would be like, greetings from Kalaman. And like, he can totally embrace that element. But please stick through to the end because he he makes a point about publishing and representation that I just like. It just knocked me on my butt. It's, yeah. it's, it's really sobering in a way. So right. the production team 
worked really hard to fix it. That was you. Okay. Everybody, Crispin wants you to just pat him on the back. No, it don't go in with high hopes, but it is such amazing content. Um, I'm so excited to listen to this and it's like, I want to discuss it, but I know that we're going to be discussing these things later. So I'm just like holding back all the thoughts and uh, enjoy my conversation with uh, Ali Reza Shafi Nassab. My name is Ali Reza Shafi. I studied English literature in the University of Tehran, and I graduated some five years ago. Since then, I've been working as an English teacher and translator. I try to work on literary works, most of all. And, yeah. Part of what I want to talk to you about is, uh, yeah, Kellerman or Kellermine. I don't know how to say it, but that's that's this world that C.S. Lewis created in his Narnia books that I think is supposed to symbolize, you know, the Orient or the East. And Mm -hmm. I I actually, I'm not very knowledgeable about what Lewis had in mind when he was writing about this country and their characteristics. But when I was a kid, The Horse and His Boy was actually my favorite book because I loved the talking horse. (laughs) I loved the story. So before we talk about that, when did you first read C.S. Lewis or the Chronicles of Narnia books? Okay. I didn't read it as a kid, but the first time I read the Chronicles of Narnia, it wasn't as a kid, but I was at high school. And like everybody else, I was fascinated by Lewis's, you know, storytelling and how he can capture all your imagination by these fantastic stories. Mm-hmm. So, so then I read them again when I was studying for a master's degree because I was writing my thesis on them. To pick them for your thesis, I'm, I'm very curious. Well, actually, the literature of fantasy has always been my passion. And the kind of storytelling that C.S. Lewis offers in the Chronicles of Narnia, I guess, was more fascinating to me than, than like, Lord of the Rings or other classical works of fantasy. That's why I chose the Chronicles of Narnia. I love that. And what do you think makes Narnia different from the Lord of the Rings? And you're saying it's this storytelling. Well, definitely it's the storytelling element, and there's also the other fact that the Chronicle of, uh, or the world of Narnia, actually, is a parallel world. It's not a separate world like Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. It's somehow like the, both the worlds uh, move side by side. You know what I mean? Yes. Our world is also there, and Narnia is also there. That's, I think, one of the main differences between this work and Lord of the Rings. I think that's true, and in some ways that makes it more interesting, but then I wonder if it also kind of highlights some of the troubling aspects of C.S. Lewis. So you had mentioned that you basically live in Kellerman, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And what was that like to read these books and uh, see the sort of caricaturization of parts of your culture, although I'm not sure 
what what do you think C.S. Lewis had in mind when he was writing about Kellerman as opposed to Narnia and Archenland? Okay, um, I'm sure you have heard the expression that he was a man of his time. It's nothing new. Yeah. Uh, the times are different, naturally. In his time, it wasn't a big deal if you could somehow, let's say, make fun of other people. Let's not use the word insult or that kind of thing. But maybe he was just trying to make fun of because, you know, the descriptions, the characterizations are somehow funny more than, you know, insulting or that kind mm -hmm. of thing. For example, when all those Kalorman people use the poetry of their ancient poets or, I don't know, the language they use, all of them somehow make you at least smile rather than be insulted. It's like, in some ways, valuing it and at the same time, maybe saying it's a little bit ridiculous. <laughs> I don't, I don't yes. know. I'm not quite sure. Again, I'm not quite sure what what the goal was here, but I will say, you know, when I read the books as a little kid, I mostly missed a lot of that. And now when I read it, especially because in the past few years, you know, I have many more friends who are from other countries that are not Western. And I have more friends, you know, who come from maybe more Islamic countries and backgrounds. It does mm -hmm. strike me as this is somebody who maybe didn't fully understand. <laughs> <laughs> other perspectives outside of his own and I think out of all the books the horse and his boy in particular is hard yes, to read because that's focuses on the Kalorman and so that's where his world building kind of falls apart for me um, <laughs> but I, I'm curious about your perspective on that okay first we have to Look at the origins of this kind of world that he creates in the Kalorman. Uh, he was greatly fascinated by Arabian Nights or 1001 Night. The world that is created there is somehow a mix of, a mixture of all the Oriental cultures. For example, we see Arabic elements, we see Persian elements, we see Turkish elements, etc. And Lewis was greatly fascinated. He was, you know, he says he read that book as a kid. And since then, he was charmed by that magical world. And it's interesting to know that it's not just the Kalorman world that incorporates elements from the Arabian Nights. Actually, for example, when you look at the world of Narnia itself, for example, Aslan. Do you know the meaning of the name Aslan? No. It comes from a Turkish word, uh, a, a Turkish word which means lion, basically. Mm. And it's the name of one of the characters in one of the fairy tales of the Arabian Nights. So somehow the god of Narnia is taken from, at least his name is taken from the Arabian Nights. Oh, wow. And we also have the, the character of Caspian. And you know the Caspian Sea and all mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So even in the world of Narnia, we see elements from the Arabian Nights. He was fascinated by these stories. And somehow he tried to, you know, reconstruct that world in his universe. 
So that's why we see all those elements of color men with those long beards and dark skins and, I don't know, upturned shoes mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And on the other hand, we see elements like the ones I just mentioned in the world of Narnia. Yeah, I think that's a great point that he, I think in his writings, he let a lot of his fascinations spill into his writing. And I think, right, it annoyed some of his friends, like Tolkien, who said, you know, why are you putting Father Christmas in these mm -hmm. books? Why are you putting all this stuff in there? So I think that's a part of his personality. I do think it's interesting if you take a step back and you think, though, that some of his nationalism really does shine through in the mm -hmm. books. You know, sometimes even myself just thinking, why does Narnia need some British kids to come and be <laughs> the kings and queens, right? It's it's just kind of interesting how, like you said, that's a part of his life is just that's how it is, you know, and that's who would rule. But I am I am really curious about you also studied sort of the psychology that Lewis was interested in. Would you be able to talk a little bit about that? Yes, sure. Uh, as you know, he was part of a literary group called Inklings. Mm -hmm. And it was more like a friendly gathering, but after all, they all talked about topics related to psychology and literature and different kinds. And in one of his essays, he talks about psychologies of Freud and Jung. Mm -hmm. When you read that essay you fully realize that his problem with Freud is that he reduces everything to sexual energy and sexual mm -hmm. impulses and all that. But when it comes to Jung, he calls it a more humane version of psychology. Mm. He talks about all those archetypes and everything, and that was actually the premise of my thesis. Because if he's interested in Psychology of Jung incorporates some elements of that in his writing. So that's what I trace in his Narnia books. The first books, sometimes we read passing descriptions of how Aslan is not a tame lion. You remember that, right? Yes. What it means. So, psychology, we have an image of God, different from the Christian God, because because he is not pure good. Mm. The good side and a bad side. And in the character of Aslan, as I said, he read those brief descriptions of how he's not a tame lion. All we see is definitely like a good kind of father who loves all his sons and daughters and all that. But then we read that description. We don't know why, we just read it that he's not a tame lion. Mm -hmm. But then, there are some more books, and finally, at the end, the last battle, that's when this, you know, this description somehow bubbles. That's yeah. when we see these Kalormans somehow, you know, abuse this conception. Because they remind people that Aslan is not, is not a tame lion. So this is how he is punishing you because of what you did. If you mm. don't listen to us, it's going to punish you even more. So somehow this, let's say, culture, the culture of Kalormans, 
is abusing that basic idea of how God has an evil side. Mm -hmm. Even if we only see the good side, if you believe that there is a bad side, somebody is going to come and, uh, you know, this idea. So, wow. this is how he incorporated this idea, this Jungian idea of God, somehow as a precaution to see, to show actually, this is what is going to happen if you believe in that kind of God. This oh may be... Yeah. I, I'm not sure. I didn't talk about this in my thesis, this what I'm going to say now. I didn't talk about this, but maybe... You, you know, he was also, you know, influenced by Dante. Mm -hmm. And he read the Divine Comedy. And some people say even that Dante influenced his becoming a Christian. It was a year before he became a Christian that he read uh, Divine Comedy. Mm -hmm. And you know that Dante represents the prophet of Islam in his hell. And all those descriptions of how he created a schism in religion and all that. Okay? Oh. oh. I, thought, I didn't know that. <laughs> thought, yeah. <laughs> so I thought maybe this is somehow a variation on that theme. Maybe mm -hmm. this Kalorman religion or culture or whatever you call it, is another type of, another variation on that theme. He's somehow saying that since the Narnians believe that uh, Aslan is not a tame lion, somebody is here creating this schism and, you know, making them believe that they are being punished by him. So this may be another influence on how he, you know, was constructing this world. Wow. That is so interesting because, you know, I think Christians, many Christians that I know also have the same problems with actually kind of thinking God is a little bit like a monster, <laughs> you know? And so <laughs> it, it's fascinating to think that maybe he had religions like Islam in mind, but it's, it's actually a problem with many cultures who have a view of God. And so now I want to go... Uh, learn a lot more about <laughs> this Jungian concept of of God. So, thank you <laughs> for sharing that with us. And I'm, I'm just so interested. Um, if you think he did did overtly write about Islam, is that in the Last Battle mostly? You think that's happening, or do you think he was trying to stay away from religion? Or it sounds like what you're saying is maybe he was trying to talk about Islam and how it has how its view of the divine. Um, well, you know, he was a layman theologian. Mm -hmm. So, he goes into the realm of religion. He has many books on religion. So, we cannot avoid incorporating his writing, even in his big to say that he was specifically targeting Islam on this uh, topic, I'm not sure, because as you know, some of the Kalormans are not evil. And right. even we read that if a worshipper of Chivas, the worshipper of Tash, who is the, you know, Kalorman god. Mm -hmm. 
And I might just add that, you know, Tash is, in Persian, in old Persian, actually, Tash means fire. Mm. So those people might be somehow worshippers of fire, which is what ancient Persians were known for. They were mm. known for So, okay. So he says, if somebody worships Aslan and is mischievous, he is actually a worshipper of Tash. And on the other hand, if somebody worships Tash and is like a good person, Aslan. I remember a, <laughs> a Spanish friend of mine told me, you're a good Christian, except you're a Muslim. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So I was reminded of this sentence in the book that, in his opinion, maybe I'm a worshiper of Tash, but since I'm a good person, I am a good worshiper of Aslan. So wow. I think he does incorporate this religious element, but he is not totally against those who aren't worshippers of Aslan, which means they are not Christians. Yes. But somehow, okay, it's basically is like us, even if not nominally, is a good person. That is maybe the basic idea that he tries to show in his stories. Yes, and I agree. I think that in some ways he is inclusive in his writings. In other ways, you know, he still has his European-centric Christian British nationalism, you know, at play. But there are some places where you, where he is kind of making it wider. I know for me, I come from like a pretty conservative Christian background and that part in the last battle always made people uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, like C.S. Lewis saying everybody worships Aslan. It's funny. And I just think it's actually a beautiful part of, of his writings. And what I love talking to people about Narnia is that so many people get so many different things out of it you know there's there's people from many religions jewish muslim christian and and non-religious too who love these books and love these stories and i think it's important to pay attention to that right um, definitely yeah so what so going back to your original love for these stories could you tell me what your favorite book of the narnia books is uh, I'd say the first book is my favorite. I don't know, because maybe because I just read it first and it made the strongest impression in my mind. That may be why, because the art of storytelling in all of them is magnificent. He, is, he has done a masterful job, you know, telling all those stories. But maybe because the first book made the greatest impression on me, that's still my favorite after all these years. Yeah. Yeah, and did you, I, I think one question I have for myself, just being somebody who grew up, you know, mostly only reading books where the authors are white or Christian and things like that, I, I have been trying to ask myself, how can I read some other great works of storytelling that don't just come from my culture or my religious background? And so... I wonder if you have some suggestions or maybe examples of, of other storytelling that you grew up with that you'd like to share. And it's okay if, if you don't, <laughs> but it's just something like, I know C.S. Lewis was influenced by Arabian Nights, but I'm sure there are other examples of 
storytelling from other cultures that people like you myself like can be seeking out. Modern fiction, or are you talking about old stories and that kind of thing? Well, maybe modern if it's sort of relying on the old storytelling. Does that make sense? Modern stories that rely on old <laughs> storytelling. <laughs> yeah, I think. Well, yeah, I have to think about, about that. Yeah. Maybe I'm going to tell you, give you some suggestions, but okay. I think I have to think about it. Yeah, no, to that's good. You could, you could just even email me and, and we will share them on the podcast because one of my goals is to say, you know, there are some problems in the Narnia books and I don't want to pretend like there aren't. And so for people like me, how do we continue to read good stories, to be moved by them, and then to challenge ourselves to say, how can I read good stories from a wide variety of perspectives? I think that's one way to move forward when dealing yes. with, with problems. I wonder if you have any anything you'd like to add, you know, as we're talking about, you know, I would definitely call it some racism in in the Chronicles of Narnia against, um, you know, Eastern or Oriental cultures. Um, I don't know if you have any suggestions for people for how to approach reading these books, knowing that this is in there specifically about Kalamun and and this this bias against it. Actually, one of the problems here that with the Kalorman world against or as opposed to let's say, the Arabian Nights, is that when you read the Arabian Nights, all those people, good and evil, are in that world. Everybody's like that, and they are either good or evil. Mm -hmm. But the problem that comes up in the Chronicles of Narnia is that they are set against those white Europeans. Mm -hmm. They know there is a sharp contrast. And that is when you feel that all those people are evil, even if he says that some of them are not, mm-hmm. and all these white Christians are good people, mm-hmm. even if some of them, again, are not. Because the majority, naturally, you know, somehow overshadows the exceptions. But on the other hand, as you said, if there are books that are read from other cultures, it can somehow, you know, balance this view somehow expand the horizons Mm -hmm. but there are also problems with that Uh, i will talk about the epic of my country iran okay okay there is this old epic which dates back to like a thousand years ago and it's a very large book which is called the book of kings or the epic of kings okay After a thousand years, there is no complete translation into English. And actually, it's a very skillful work in terms of storytelling and in terms of, uh, you know, the poetry and the themes. In every aspect of, you know, literature, it somehow excels. Mm -hmm. But despite all this, there is no good translation of it for Western readers. I don't know if it's just coincidental or maybe the Western readers are not interested or I don't know. 
But the problem is the result is actually there are many good books that that have not been translated for Western readers. Mm. The great potential here, as in everywhere else, but many of them are still untouched. Wow. So if, yes, if um, there are more tr translations of Eastern works of literature or, or from other parts of the world, this can somehow balance that Eurocentric view that, as you said, we see in works like the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, so we need yeah. to demand some more translations. And is that the kind of work that you're doing currently? You said you said you're involved in translation work. Maybe you can be the one. <laughs> uh, translating classical Persian works into English. But the problem is that I don't have all those connections, those things that are necessary for, you know, to publish such a work. And I, know, mm. and I don't know even if there's a demand for them. So maybe you spend a lot of time and translate all those big works and then nothing. So okay. somehow since I don't know the, you know, the situation, the circumstances there, I cannot focus on them at the moment. But it will be a lovely project and I would yeah. gladly do it if I know everything works out, you know, good, well. Just yeah. in, all, in all your free time, just translate the biggest work of Iranian literature. <laughs> but I think you're right. We need, we need to, people like myself need to seek out those works um, and, and ask that they be published. So thank you so much for your work and for your time and for chatting with me. This has been so fascinating. Um, I just love it. Is there anything else you'd, you'd want to say about C.S. Lewis, being a reader, fairy tales, psychology, anything else? Uh, no, I just want to say that it was a pleasure talking to you. And it was a few years I was away from C.S. Lewis. So it was also another additional pleasure to talk about C.S. Lewis and his world and all that realm yeah yeah so thank, thank you, you for so that. much yeah thank you so much and do you like have a place where if people wanted to maybe find you or follow your work do you have any public social media where people can follow you uh yes my name if they search my name on instagram mm -hmm. they can find my page okay so Maybe you will write it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll put it in the show notes. So much. And um, have, a, have a good evening. You too. Have a good day. And have a good weekend. Our weekend is finished, but yours is not. It has just started. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome to Kalorman. Wow. This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. Find out more at propheticimaginationstation.com. Also, you can follow Danielle and Crispin on Twitter and Instagram, as well as following the Prophetic Imagination Station on Twitter at PIS underscore imagine and on Instagram at Prophetic Imagination Station. Thanks for listening.